So I often talk about how sales skills are broken, but how did they get that way? That's what I'm covering this week on episode 14 of the Why How Yes Sales Podcast. The Why, How, Yes sales podcast is sponsored in part by Jared James Coaching for Real Estate Agents. If you're a real estate agent listening to this podcast, you probably understand how to sell. You know when you are across a dining room table from a potential customer, that listing is probably going to come your way. The issue is how do you structure your business in order to get to that that dining room table more often. As a former top agent himself, Jared James has the tools to help you create the business that you want to own. They will help you put the systems in place where you can spend more time doing what really matters, which is creating sales. Go to jaredjamestoday.com and set up a time to have a consultation. And from there, they will be able to guide you towards running a business rather than just running around. Hey, salespeople. Uh, Welcome to the Why, How, Yes sales podcast, where I continue to help you get to the yes the right way. I'm Red Staffstrom, and I'm here to help you fix your broken sales skills. Now, this is episode 14, and I've been saying this for 14 times now, where I'm here to help you fix your broken sales skills. But how did we get there? How did we get to a point where sales skills are broken to begin with? Um, It's not something that happened overnight. In fact, it's been close to a century, actually more than a century, um, of sales training. Um, Sales training is a pretty new phenomenon. Uh, Prior to that really happening, there wasn't a big need for sales. Uh, Generally speaking, if you ran a company, it was a small company. The world hasn't globalized until probably the mid-20th century when things like um, air travel and telephones became absolutely commonplace. In the 19th century, uh, most self-help books had nothing to do with charisma, had nothing to do with sales. They tended to preach more Judeo-Christian virtues. Um, The majority of what you would have seen at the end of the 19th century were books that focused on people like Abraham Lincoln, um, people who were extremely humble, extremely well-spoken, intelligent, um, but didn't really lord over you. In fact, uh, Emerson once described Lincoln as somebody who does not offend you with a sense of superiority. Um, He was pretty much the epitome of humility. Um, One cool little story with Lincoln is at one point, uh, I think he was campaigning to be president, somebody just walked up to Lincoln and handed him a knife and said one day, he handed it to Lincoln and said, I was... I was given this knife because I was the ugliest person that they've ever seen. Since you're uglier than I am, you now have to hold this knife. And Lincoln held on to that knife until he was dead. Um, He never got rid of it because he never saw himself as an attractive or really a charismatic person. He was very soft-spoken, very... um, very much, I wouldn't quite say introverted, but introspective, I would say, based on all the histories and things that you hear. Um, he was, he had those council, like his cabinet, um, he called it the cabinet of rivals, where he brought people with drastically different ideas than his own into his inner circle so they would challenge him. That was the level of humility that he had, and that was the virtue that most 
self-help books really went after. It was all about being a person who exemplified these, again, Judeo-Christian values of humility and charity. Um, one famous manual, it was written by a person by the name of Orison Sweat Marsden. Um, if you haven't noticed, if you're watching the video, um, I actually have a printout, which I don't usually do because I want to make sure I get all the dates and things right. Orison wrote a book in, or manual in 1899, and it was called Character the greatest thing in the world. And in that, that manual, there was a story of a, shop, a girl who worked at a shop who gave her wages to a homeless man and then never saw any recognition. Um, it was her humility, she didn't want the credit, and her charity that was really exemplified in this era. Um, this era was called by a researcher by the name of Warren Sassman. He called this period the culture of character. That's what most books and most teachings revolved around, is how do you be a good person who is humble, who treats people well, um, really just epitomizes the virtues that you see. It wasn't until the 20th century that charisma and selling actually became commonplace. So in 1902, a Chautauqua speaker visited a small town in Missouri. Now, if you don't know what the Chautauqua are, you could be excused. They haven't been as prominent as they used to be. Um, the Chautauqua speakers uh, were people who went around, were highly charismatic, professional speakers, and told stories about things like um, being grateful for what you have and humility and, again, all of these virtues. Um, now, in 1902, he visited a small town in Missouri and met somebody named Dale Carnegie. Now, at the time, Dale Carnegie uh, spelt his name different, C-A-R-N-E-G-E-Y, um, as opposed to the G-I-E, which he changed it to, to mimic Andrew Carnegie, the rich industrialist. Dale was captivated by this speaker. Um, he really loved hearing it and was just saw this public speaker as a way to gain respect and to get out of being a pig farmer. That's what his parents were in a floodplain in Missouri. His parents were poor farmers. Uh, Dale Carnegie eventually went to school, uh, graduated college, um, and then got a selling job with Armor, Armor Hot Dogs, um, selling beef products in New York City. And then around 1912, um, I don't remember the exact year, he went to a YMCA on 125th Street in Harlem and started a public teaching course. And that's when this country overall started to change. And Dale is just the most prominent person in this time period that you've probably known. Um, it was in 1936 he published what's probably his best-known book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. At that point, in, 1930, in the 1930s, the United States has gone through the Great Depression. Um, the farmers were now in what they called the Dust Bowls. There were thousands and thousands of people living in Hoovervilles, which were basically shanty towns that were put up in parks. Um, poverty was the new commonplace thing in this time period. This was prior to uh, FDR really getting in. Um, I think FDR was elected in 36. The 36-11 election started in 37. Um, but this is the time period where things were really rough. And people have moved away from the agricultural societies 
and moved into corporate America because that's what was growing at the time. Um, crops were not producing the yields they used to in terms of profit. So now people were leaving these rural areas and these suburbs and migrating to the cities. And they knew nobody there really. Um, Prior to the 1930s, if you were in a rural town, you probably knew everybody. The person who you were selling to at that point probably knew you your whole life. They knew everything about you. They know your father. They know your father when he was growing up. They know all those embarrassing stories. Now you move to a city and nobody knows nothing. So you needed, in order to make a living, you needed to be, learn a way to become a trusted person, uh, be liked very, very quickly. Um, in the course of an hour, you now had to sell them on whatever product you happen to actually pitch. And in order to do that, you had to get them to agree that you're trustworthy and likable. And this happened for years and years. Um, it didn't change drastically until the 1980s. So between 1936, when How, For How to Win Friends came out, um, and the 1980s, things were pretty much the status quo. The sales books that you got, there wasn't really any research to them. Um, I want you to think about if you had to move a couch right now. Now, if you're a big, strong guy, I'm not a small guy myself, I don't need the right technique in order to move a couch. I could pretty much lift it and move it where I need to. I don't need to make sure that I lift with my knees as opposed to my back. I could pretty much just throw it and be fine. This is the people who tended to write the sales books. These are the um, Dale Carnegie's, the uh, uh, Ogmandinos, the Napoleon Hills, the J. Douglas Edwards. Um, Zig Ziglar's, all of those kinds of people had a very high strength, which was charisma. Now, if you go back and read a lot of these books, the Think and Grow Rich, the um, J. Douglas Edwards, he wrote a number of books. He was probably the go-to sales trainer uh, from the 50s to the 70s. He's known as the father of closing techniques. Um, Ogmandino, the greatest salesperson in the world. A lot of these have a lot of great advice, but they aren't studied. If you have a high degree of charisma, which salespeople had to have at that time period, they were able to put move the couch further whether their technique was right or not. So it became this culture of personality, and that's a um, a term that Warren Sassman, who defines the culture of character that I mentioned earlier, this culture of personality kind of took over in the United States around the 1930s and forwards. And it makes sense too, because this is also the time period where movies became really popular. Um, so people started to see and idolize movie stars with this bigger than life persona on these gigantic 50 foot screens and idolizing all of these, um, you know, you can go down the list, the James Deans, the Shirley, like down the whole line. And so in sales, it kind of followed suit. The people who were the best salesmen were the most charismatic. The problem is it's very difficult to teach charisma 
as a technique. If you needed to train a salesperson, they can't get by purely on just charisma. Um, so when you were trying to write scripts and you were trying to put up processes for new salespeople to learn, if they weren't naturally charismatic right from the beginning, they had a tough time. Uh, it's just like, um, I remember a late night infomercial ad where there was a small woman, uh, you know, not small, small, but she was probably about 120 pounds, you know, 50 kilograms, 120 pounds. And I remember seeing her with these straps. They were designed um, to take the weight off of your hands and move them to, towards your shoulders and elbows where you have more lifting strength. And with those straps, she was able to move this giant oak dresser. So by having a technique like, such as keeping your hands to simply steady it and lifting with your shoulders and back, she was able to lift more weight as opposed to bending down and lifting up the dresser. That's the issue with sales training at this time period, is it was kind of propelled forward by these, I don't want to say megalomaniacs, but these larger than life personalities who just captivated and draw, drew people in. They weren't necessarily skills that you can teach to anybody unless they were highly charismatic themselves. Now, if you, this is when things started to change. So in 1984, Robert Cialdini wrote the book Influence. And this is the very first book, while it wasn't meant to be a sales book, it wasn't meant to teach salespeople, but it was the very first book, a book that used social research and scientific techniques in order to figure out how salespeople sold. And it became a sales classic, even though Robert's audience was consumers. Robert wrote the book in order for it to become a way for customers to avoid being manipulated. It was designed in a way to make sure that people knew when they were getting taken for a ride and understanding what salespeople were doing over and over again. That's what he wrote the book for. However, the people who embraced the book influence were salespeople. The people who um, saw these lessons and saw this scientific method behind sales and started to apply it to their own business to see how things worked. And then in 1988, um, probably one of my favorite, if not my favorite sales book of all time, Spin Selling by Neil Rackham came out. Now this is the first book, at least that I found, and feel free to email me, write me if you know another book that exemplifies it better. But Spin Selling was the very first book that I saw actually teach using research. I don't believe that selling was a science until 1988. So that is 50 plus years of sales training with zero science behind it. I want you guys to understand that. In this time period where behaviorism and um, Freud and Pavlov and Carl Jung and all of these great, great intellects are researching and learning all of these phenomenal things about the way the human mind works, sales pretty much stagnated to um, believing the alpha male. Um, sales would pretty much boil down to whoever is the loudest in the room is the one who's going to make the sale. That was the majority of sales training. There wasn't a lot of research into what worked. It was just 
the strongest, the loudest personalities kind of dictating the field of how things needed to be sold. Um, in 1988, when spin selling came out, this was the first time that we saw flaws in the ideas of the um, people like J. Douglas Edwards. J. Douglas Edwards is known as the father of closing techniques, and Neil Rackham is probably known as the person who killed closing techniques. Um, he's the one who kind of showed that hard closing is not what actually wins sales. It's just one part of a process that was already decided. Um, if I'm to build a house, you don't know that the house is great because I put the last shingle on the right way. It takes every step of the process in order to build a house the right way. Rob, uh, um, Neil Rackham was the very first one, at least that I found, to give you a scientific method backed with research of following thousands and thousands of sales calls to show you what actually does and doesn't work. And closing techniques had no, absolutely zero correlation with being successful. Uh, in fact, salespeople who used more closing techniques in a call tended to be less successful. Now this was the antithesis to probably 30 years of sales training. Since the 1950s, when J. Douglas Adams became popularized, um, there were some publishers who would not publish a book if it did not have closing in the title somewhere. Um, they would not publish a sales book if it did not have closing in the title somewhere. Neil Rackham's changed the way a lot of salespeople look at sales. Um, it's not just about overturning objections. It's not just about um, making the best first impression. It's about every step in the process and getting them to know, like, and trust you. Um, so that's really the big key. That's what I want you to take away from this is how young, excuse me, how young and inexperienced real sales training is. Real sales training from a scientific perspective is a millennial. It's, it's at that age where it still liked Ninja Turtles. That's what it grew up on. 1988 to 2020, as I'm recording it today, that is a very short period of time. Think, in only 30 years, if we were to like just look at psychology, um, we barely moved from analytical, like Freud, into behaviorist theory. It, that was well before anything. So sales training is going to evolve so much, even in the next decade, um, let alone the next two or three decades. It's going to be a completely different landscape than it is today very shortly. Um, we've just turned that corner 30 years ago. So I want you guys to keep that in mind that not all sales books are created equal. Some of it is just people with raw strength, like the Dale Carnegie's, the Ogmandinos, the um, Zig Ziglar's, these guys who have this animal magnetism. But that doesn't mean that they can teach you how to sell. It simply means that they have animal magnetism and they draw people in. Your sales techniques need to be scientifically proven in order to work. So that's what I really wanted to found this podcast on is that not all sales training that's been around forever just because we've always done it this way 
doesn't make it the right way. Um, so I hope you guys actually follow some of this research, look into some of these books that uh, I brought up. Um, they're not worthless. Um, I'm not going to tell you you should never read Dale Carnegie or any of the people I mentioned, but understand that when you do, these aren't this is what works for them as strong individuals. That doesn't mean they're not lifting with their back when they shouldn't. So, um, once again, this has been episode 14 of the Why, How, Yes sales podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, please, please, please take the time to write a review, um, to subscribe, make sure you're notified when new episodes come out. It really means a lot, and it helps the uh, podcast and the channel quite a bit. Um, I look forward to talking to you guys next time, uh, where I will continue to help you fix your broken sales skills. The Why How Yes Sales Podcast is also sponsored by the Jarja Media CRM. Only 12% of all real estate leads are reached out to more than three times. This means that almost 90% of all agents are throwing away thousands of dollars worth of lead generation marketing every year simply by not keeping in touch with the prospects that they already paid for. With drip campaigns that are written by one of the nation's top coaching companies, you'll be able to automate keeping potential clients in front of you for well over a year. The Jarja Media CRM will make sure that you are not leaving any meat on the bone and that the leads you are already paying for are actually turning into customers. Schedule a demo online at jarjamedia.com slash CRM.